All right, welcome everybody to our fourth session in Marriage Matters. And we have copies of today's notes. So Larry and Carl have some and Gene has some. So we've got these guys spread out in all three aisles. If you need a copy of today's notes, they'll get some to you. And we'll look at those notes together in just a bit. A few announcements. This afternoon at 5 o'clock is baptism. I encourage all of you to come to encourage those who are being baptized, but also, and perhaps especially those of you that have never been baptized, so you can see what that is and what is involved. So today at 5, and we will have a great time together. We'll have a dinner afterwards in celebration, as we always do. So please come one, come all. Now for that, it happens in this room, and we have round tables set up for the dinner And to facilitate that setup, men, after we're done here at noon, if some of you could stick around and help us uh, stack the chairs, move the chairs out of the way, and then we'll be rolling in the round tables to set up. So we can literally get that done in like 15 minutes uh, with just some of our guys hanging around. But it means, ladies, you've got to get out of here or we'll put you to work as well. So right at noon, beat it, and then uh, we'll have the uh, guys... Set up the tables and chairs. Also, the Saturday, ladies, is a breakfast for you, 9 o'clock here. And the breakfast food is going to be prepared by some of our men. I mentioned in the first hour that that shouldn't scare you too much because the guys have practiced at this. They've done it. They've done it well. I've uh, been at uh, some of the men's breakfasts that they've cooked, and uh, they do a good job. So, ladies, all of you are welcome to that, 9 o'clock this coming Saturday. And then Saturday, the 21st of this month, 10 o'clock at our house is the next newcomer's brunch. We have brunch periodically uh, at our home for newcomers. Those who have never been to one of our brunches is a newcomer, even if you've been around for a while. We also have old comers brunches. We started that. We've had two of those now. So every couple of months we uh, go through the directory alphabetically and we're inviting people who haven't been over in a while. So I see the Ruizes over here. When we get to the R's, we'll invite you guys to uh, to come back, okay? And so if you haven't been invited, it's because we haven't gotten to your name in the alphabet yet, okay? But the newcomers is this uh, month, the 21st, 10 a.m. at our house. We'd love to have you all come. We need to know if you're coming so we know how much food to make. Let them know at the information desk, and they will get you an invitation with our phone number, the date, time, and um, a map to our house on it. All right, page... 24, page 24 in your notes, first page of today's handout, and you see at the top, it's titled The Trauma of Transparency, and that implies that there's a reason that it is hard for us to be transparent with one another. That's what that title suggests, The Trauma of Transparency. It's traumatic, it's, it's difficult for us to be open and honest and transparent with one another. There's actually a book by that title. It's out of print now, unfortunately, but the title of the book is The Trauma of Transparency, and it deals with some of the same things that we're going to deal with here. But let me begin in showing that difficulty in being transparent uh, by just illustrating from the life of a fictitious couple that comes for uh, marital counseling. Uh, And the wife begins by saying, I think we have communication problems. And then she starts by saying that uh, 
he, my husband, wants me to go back to, or excuse me, I want to go back to work part-time, but he doesn't want me to, uh, to do that. And we're struggling financially, and the kids are in school now, and I think it would be a good idea for us to, to do that. And then he interjects, and he says, well, you're not, you're not understanding all the ramifications of this, that you're going to go part-time back to your nursing profession, and you're not remembering how taxing all of that is and how tired you're going to be and, and so on. And then she says to him, uh, you, you know, uh, what's your problem? <laughs> and, you know, why is it that you don't uh, want me to be able to contribute to uh, the well-being of our, of our, our family? And then he gets back and says, snaps back and says, well, why is it you want to get away from the family so much? I mean, it's just like you can't wait to get out of the house and go do, do something else. And it degenerates like that. And the counselor says to them, you know, you came in saying we have a communication problem. You're absolutely right. But then he points out that you came in starting to argue about whether or not she should go back part-time nursing. But in fact, in many of the things that you've said to each other, just in this short exchange, it's clear that there are other things that you're not saying to each other. There are other fears, there are other concerns that you're not speaking. And so this becomes the presentation problem, but it's not really the root problem. So why is it that he wonders about her getting out of the house? And her desire to get out as quickly as she can. And why is it that she's saying, you don't want me to have a significant role in helping this family? Why is she saying that? Well, there's some things at root that are not being spoken, are not being communicated. That's why we say at the top of page 24, have you, how often have you complained that you and your spouse don't communicate? Often this complaint is not pointing to a failure of communication. Instead, it's pointing to a failure of honesty. People don't hear what their spouses mean to say, nor are they, being com- are they being completely honest about what they themselves are thinking. The Bible says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, this issue of communication and truthful, transparent, honest communication is important for any relationship, and in particular, the marital relationship. And I want to briefly explain why. That it's, it's because, one, God does, contrary to what many of us think, God does sweat the small stuff. You know, most of us think that God only really cares about the big things and the big struggles that go on in our lives. It's absolutely not true. The mere fact that God would have a passage like we just read, that addresses how we talk means God cares about much more minute detail than we give him credit for. We think he only cares if I'm sinning in the big ways, in the obvious ways. But God has much to say about the use of our tongues. God sweats the small stuff. Now, why is that? Because it's in those small moments, it's in those ordinary moments. And that's why the subtitle of this series is Extraordinary change through ordinary moments. It's through those kinds of ordinary moments that we reveal what our, who our functional God is.
Now, I say our functional God. If I were to poll everybody here and ask who is your God, you'd give me a biblical, orthodox, right answer. But it's Monday through Saturday in how you interact and how you talk that reveals who your functional God is. That is, in function, in practice, who and what really matters to you. That comes out in the way you talk. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 36, it is out of, Matthew 10, 36, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So those words are revelatory. They reveal, they expose something about us, and God therefore cares about that. He cares about the Monday through Saturday, not just what we say on Sunday, because it says what's really important to us, what our functional God is, but we don't often say transparently, honestly, openly what those things are. It's similar to, it's a rough analogy, but uh, in law enforcement, there's a theory called uh, the broken window theory. Anybody ever heard of that? The broken window theory? Uh, they used it in New York years ago under Rudy Giuliani and the police chief there. And if you know the story of New York, New York had become a place where tourists just about didn't want to go anymore because the crime had been so bad and uh, uh, and people were afraid to go. And so what do they do about it? And Giuliani and his police chief, whose name I forget, uh, started practicing something called the broken window theory. And the idea was this, sweat the small stuff, take the small stuff seriously. Because the way they were doing it was they were only going after the obvious, the drug dealers, you know, the, the, the thieves, the murderers. So they started sweating graffiti and broken windows and littering. And it sent a signal to everybody that the big stuff obviously matters because we care about this stuff too. And over about a 10-year period, they cleaned that thing up. Tourism came back to, to New York. And one of the premises of this series is that if you take care of the ordinary moments, then it will keep us from those large moments that we all fear. If you've already experienced those large moments of sin against you or against your, your spouse, then if you begin to demonstrate that you care about the broken windows, the graffiti of your relationship, it will communicate to your spouse, we're not going there again. God cares about the small stuff because those are revelatory. They tell us who our functional God is. And God has designed the family to be a sort of incubator, a sort of laboratory in which we will develop in Christ likeness in the mundane, not in the extraordinary. And so let me give you a passage that, that speaks to that. At the top of page 24, we quote, Ephesians 4, and verse 29 of that passage, this is what it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up others according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's Ephesians 4.29. No unwholesome talk. The only kind of talk that comes out of your mouth is talk that builds up those that are within your hearing. Now, You hear that, you say, okay, the Bible says that, check. (laughs) But here's what you need to, here's what you need to understand, that that's connected to family life. 
Jay Adams, some of you know that name, he's an author and a counselor, and he gives the context for this command from Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, only what is good for the building up of others according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. He gives the context of that. Here's what he says. Chapter 4 of Ephesians opens with a discussion of the Christian walk, that is, his daily manner of life as a Christian. And on the basis of the great plan of God's redemption in history that had just been unfolded in chapters 1 through 3, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, says, I urge you to walk in a manner which is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So that's how chapter 4 starts then of Ephesians. And then in verse 17, Adam says, the theme is reiterated. As he says, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. And then in chapter 5, he speaks of walking in love, walking as children of light, being careful how one, how one lives. And then he says this, the discussion of the Christian's life, the Christian's walk in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians must be understood not as a separate subject, but rather as an integral part of the discussion of basic Christian relationships. The walk is not a solitary walk. Rather, it's a walk of one believer with others. When Paul talks about Christian relationships, he's speaking of the joint walk, now hear this, of husbands and their wives. The walk of children with their parents and parents with their children and the businessman with his employees. We do not walk in the paths of righteousness alone. Christ and our brethren are on the road as well. It's the walk of the Christian with the Lord and with other believers that Paul had in mind. And so that passage in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of others, that it may meet the need of the moment. That's in the context of the very next chapter where it goes through these relationships that we're called to. Husbands and wives, parents to children, children to parents, slaves and their masters, in our context, businessmen and their employees. So God sweats the so-called small stuff. And the family is designed by God to be this sort of laboratory in which the Christian life is lived out as we interact as spouses, parents, and children, and and so on. So, first, we want to see that. Why it is we tend to hide. Why it is that it's traumatic for us to be transparent and honest for one another. What's the root of that? Where does that come from? Why is that the deal with you and with me? Page 24, the problem of hiding. On the one hand, we want to be known and loved, but on the other hand, we often avoid knowing ourselves, and we know it isn't entirely safe to be known by another sinner. No matter how much you love and trust your spouse, there are probably things you don't want them to know about you. Before the fall, that is, before the entrance of sin into God's world, Adam and Eve knew nothing of that sort of feeling. There was nothing to hide or to avoid. And now let's read what it was like for them and how it changed. The end of chapter 2 of the first book in the Bible, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Then chapter 3 starts, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, at the top of that next page, we say that Adam and Eve went from being open, uncovered, and unashamed to feeling shame and the need to hide. The nakedness that the Bible is talking about is about more than physical nakedness. Now, let me deal with that first. This shame that caused them to hide from God is about more than physical nakedness. Now, how do we know this? We just read the dialogue between the serpent and the woman and then between God and the man and the woman. And after they have sinned and they hear God coming, their first instinct is to hide from God. They hide from God and then God questions Adam, where are you? Now, I love this. Let's bear in mind who's asking the question, where are you? This would be the omniscient one of the universe. Do you think he knows where Adam is hanging out? But you see, he's looking to smoke Adam out here. Adam, where are you? God knows where he is. So God's not looking for a GPS, you know, or help with directions. And Adam says, well, I was naked. So I, I realized I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, he says that toward the end of the passage, that I was, that I was naked uh, in verse 10. But look back in verse 7. If you look back on page 24 in verse 7, Adam says, I was naked, so I hid. But in verse 7, it says, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So he's not naked. So he not only hides, he lies. So sin not only messes up your relationships. Now here, the sin makes you stupid. One, he's hiding in these trees and he's thinking to himself, God will never find me here. Well, that's stupid. And then he lies to God. I was naked. But the fact is, he's already made coverings for himself. And that's why we say this shame, this hiding from God, is not about physical nakedness. It's about guilt before God. It's because now, as a result of our having sinned in the garden, and notice how I say that, our having sinned in the garden, Adam did what we would have done. So you can think of it this way. Every person born after Adam and Eve is just an extension of Adam and Eve. You know, different heights, different shapes, different personalities, all the same thing, sinners who are hiding from God. 
And that's the way we come into the world then. That's the beginning here. Now notice the dynamic then. They're hiding from God. It's not physical nakedness. It's actually shame, guilt because of their sin that they're hiding from God. And every person that now comes into the world comes in with that same guilt before God. That's you and that's me, every last one of us. So built into your communication, all of it, and especially in your home with your spouse, is this hiding that you're doing. This failure to be honest, open, and transparent. They were not open with God. And further, in this dialogue from Genesis 3, they begin to use their tongues in unauthorized ways. Now, I say it that way purposely. They use their tongue in unauthorized ways. I'll say it one more time. They use their tongue in unauthorized ways. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever thought about your words, your mouth, your tongue, and what comes out of it being authorized? Sometimes we use the words power and authority as synonyms. They're not the same. Power means I have the ability to do something. Authority means I have the right to do something. And Adam and Eve in chapter 3 begin to use their tongues in ways not authorized by God. That is, to put it another way, ways that God has not given given them the right to do. That's why it's called authority, because it has been authorized. So a government can have power, but it can use that power in unauthorized ways, right? And that's exactly what Adam and Eve start to do. They have this ability to speak, but from whom did that ability to speak come? From whom did it come? God. And God gave that ability for them to carry out the purpose for which he made them and fashioned them in his image. Namely, to reflect him back to him. But instead of doing that and using what God has given for the purpose for which he gave it, they now use their communication ability in ways that God did not authorize. And at the end of the passage on page 24, God Asks in verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, God knows this. But the first two words out of the man's mouth in answer. First two words are the woman. Now, communication that was made to reflect God and God's character is now being used to blame shift and lie. It's on the woman. Now, guys and gals, we could spend a lot of time here about how you and I mimic what Adam is doing here. But anytime you blame shift, anytime you use your mouth to say, but this is what they did. Anytime and every time you do something wrong, But you give a rationalization for it. Guess who you're modeling? Your old man. Adam. And it starts here. The first thing out of his mouth is, it's the woman. But I want you to notice something else 
in verse 12. It's the woman. It's her fault. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now, God doesn't ask this. It's all implied from the narrative. Where's Adam in this whole scenario? What's going on with you, Adam, while your wife, your, the woman is the one who did this and she gave me some fruit. I mean, what was I supposed to do? Tell her I don't, you know, I told her I don't like meatloaf the night before and she got ticked about that. Okay, so she gives me an apple. I just, I just eat what she puts before me. I mean, that's what he's trying to say here, okay? But you know who was put, you know who was put in charge? Adam. Now, I won't bore you with all of that because I bored you with that as we've gone through the book of Genesis during our 930 hour over months. And we saw how God made Adam to lead his home. Chapter 2 of Genesis. Then you come to chapter 3 and guess who's front and center in the dialogue? It's the woman with the serpent. And the question is, where is Adam? And the answer is in verse 6. Chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. You guys see the next phrase? Who was with her and he ate it. And then God questions Adam and everything has changed now that he has sinned. He's not in communion with God. He's hiding from God. He's guilty before God. He's not in communion with his wife anymore. They're not in harmony. And the first thing out of his mouth is the woman... But when, in fact, he's supposed to be in charge, and this whole scenario has gone down as Adam watches while the human race is plunged into sin. And he says nothing. And then when the consequences are meted out, he says the woman. And so you wonder why people blame, shift, and rationalize. It goes all the way back to our first parents. The woman, first thing out of his mouth. But it's worse than that. Verse 12 again. The man said, the woman, and then look at the third word. The woman, you. The woman you gave me. You see, the reason I'm an angry man, the reason I'm a discontented wife, is because of stuff that my spouse does. And who gave me this spouse anyway? God did. That's why one author was right when he said, when you're angry, you are ultimately angry with who? When you're angry with your circumstances, you're ultimately angry with the author of the circumstances, God. And so Adam says here, the woman you gave me. This is ultimately an accusation against God. And I mean, and I mean quite an accusation. It has gone south very quickly. Now I say it's gone south, just as an aside. You guys know we used to have an associate pastor here named Matt Owen. And he's now pastoring a church in Jacksonville, Florida. So he tells me, you know, I can't say it goes south anymore. But actually, I tell Matt, now that you're down south, it's actually a more apt description of something really bad, okay? So so it goes south really bad. I mean, it goes to Jacksonville really bad, okay? And really quick here. It's the woman that you gave me. Let me just fill it in for Adam. Here's Adam. 
in his pomposity, saying to his maker, the woman did this, and you're the one who gave me the woman. And the fact of the matter is, you've only made two human beings, God. And one of the two doesn't work right. You gave me this woman, and you gave me a defective model. It's the woman you gave me. But then God turns and says, verse 13, to the woman, what is this you have done? Again, God knows. The woman says, first two words out of her mouth. The serpent. Now implied in that is, where do serpents come from? Who made serpents? God made every piece of this. So it's blame shifting and rationalization, but ultimately it is an accusation against God. And for you and for me, friends, if you're an angry husband, a discontented wife, whatever is characteristic of you, whatever sin rears its head in your relationship on a regular basis because you don't like what's going on, ultimately it's an accusation against God. Top of page 25, Adam and Eve went from being open, uncovered, and unashamed to feeling shame and the need to hide. The nakedness the Bible is talking about is more than physical nakedness. As we've seen, Adam and Eve's physical nakedness is simply a visible expression of the total openness they enjoyed with each other and God himself. They literally lived with nothing to hide inside or out, but sin resulted in hiding. They sewed fig leaves together to hide from each other. They hid among the trees in an attempt to hide from God when confronted by God. They blamed each other, and they blamed God. Now, I want to take a few minutes. This is not in your notes. But to give you some forms of common hiding that goes on in our communication. So if you care to jot these down, if not, you can listen to the recording. Or if not, you can just blow it off completely. But here are ways in which, in our communication, we typically hide from each other. One is what I call unspoken barriers. Unspoken barriers. That there are, that there is a barrier between us or barriers between us that we haven't brought to the fore. We haven't spoken about. They're unspoken barriers. Now, what might those be? Well, I'm going to give you two types. One is historical issues. That is things that have gone on in our relationship that have built up that have created a barrier, but we haven't dealt with it. Unspoken barriers of the historical type. Any relationship that existed for some time allows ample opportunity to harbor real or perceived wrongs against the grievances against the other party. And so many relationships are like that, where over time there's dying the death of a thousand cuts that haven't been dealt with. Barriers are built up. Because of historical issues, large or small, real or perceived. But then there's another category of these unspoken barriers, and that is sinful response that creates an unspoken barrier. Whenever we fail to deal biblically with issues, we engage in one of two responses. We blow up or we clam up. And in the case of unspoken barriers, one of the parties prefers to clam up. So we've got a barrier between us, but we're not dealing with it in transparency and honesty and openness 
because one of the parties is responding to what's happening by bottling it up. So they're not the blow up person, they're the clam up person. So this is the person who broods about whatever's going on. Now, eventually, that's a volcano that erupts. So clam up usually results at some point in the future in blow up. But rather than deal with it, the person turns inward. And there are a number of ways in which a person can clam up. Throw themselves into their work. Drink. Hobbies. I mean, this, this is, in large part, the origin of things like the man cave. I've got my place to go to escape, to, to brood, but not deal with the issues. Unspoken barriers, historical that have not been dealt with, or a sinful response, clamming up and failing to deal with it. So that's one category of ways we hide. Unspoken barriers. Here's another. Unspoken expectations. So we're not transparent, open, honest about what our expectations were and are. So you come into marriage, and each of you has expectations. And if you were here with us for the first week, I said most people get married without ever going through premarital counseling, which means they're not prepared for it. They haven't had their baggage dealt with before they get married, All the, whatever baggage they're bringing into the relationship. And part of that baggage check would have been, what do you expect to happen in marriage? This expectations game is such a large issue for our marriages that there's a series. Actually, we did it about four years ago. Some of you were here for that. And it was called, What Did You Expect? By a man named Paul Tripp. What did you expect? So there are these expectations, but they're they're unspoken. Now, those expectations can come from a variety of sources. Our upbringing, this is the way it happened when I was, I assume this is the way it's going to happen when we get married. That's what I expect, even though I haven't brought that out to the table. Or they come from the media or from our friends. We may even have false expectations because we compare the other party to a false standard. I expect you to be like, and do you know usually... Who the false standard is? Yo. Why can't you be like me? If you were like me, then we wouldn't have these problems. Now we laugh, we chuckle, but really, you think about it. When you complain about your spouse, you think about the things you say. And in most of the things you say, you're saying, they don't see it my way. They're not like me. Now, others of us know you. And we're actually happy that not everybody is you. And, of course, they can say and do in their minds, whether they speak it or not, that think the same thing. Why can't you be more like me? So they're unspoken expectations. And such unspoken expectations are a major source of frustration and anger. And I've said this for years, that things like depression and anger, and I don't mean clinical depression, 
but the frustration that we just experience on a regular basis, and then the anger that kind of seethes. Frustration and anger are the difference between expectations and reality. We come into marriage with expectations, acquired however, they come from a number of sources. It's going to be like this, it should be like this, you should be like this. And then I'm down, frustrated, discontent, angry, because there is always a gap between what I expected and what actually happened. Now, here's the thing. You can't change the reality of what your spouse is. I said that in the very first week. But you can alter your expectations. You can reduce, even eliminate that gap between expectations and reality. But the thing you do wrong, the thing most of us do wrong, is we try to eliminate that gap by changing the reality of who my spouse is. When in fact, what we ought to do is alter the expectations that we came in with. Those expectations that should have been out on the table at the beginning and should be spoken, not unspoken expectations, those need to be spoken and they need to be adjusted. So our communication goes south because of unspoken barriers, unspoken expectations. I'm on a roll. Stay with me. Unwarranted assumptions. Unwarranted assumptions. That is, you make assumptions, we make assumptions about what our spouse or what other, whoever it is, but in this case our spouse, is thinking or what their motivations are, why they're why they're doing what they're doing, why they're saying what they're saying. But contrary to what many of you have been told, you do not have a sixth sense that allows you to determine the inner motivations of other people. And ladies, I'm just telling you from experience, over decades now, it has almost always been, almost exclusively, ladies of whom it is said Man, she just knows how to judge somebody's character. She just knows what's going on with people. Well, okay. You know, if you've been told that enough times, you start to believe it. Wow, look at me. I mean, I can tell what's going on with somebody just by having a bagel with them. I've got this sort of sixth sense going on. You know, and after I have the after I have the bagel with you, okay, and here's the creepy part. I mean, we just had bagels, okay? That's the creepy part. And if you've got a church half full of people who think they've got this sixth sense, you're talking to them and they're sizing you up. And they're making assumptions about you. And I'm telling you, we laugh. I'm telling you people do that. And they think they know you. They know what you're I know what you're about, good or bad. And I'm here to tell you, no, you don't. Because here's why you think you have that. One, somebody made the mistake of telling you. Here's why they told you that. Because a blind squirrel gets an acorn every now and then. And in those assumptions, you found an acorn. And your husband or somebody went... Wow, look at you. You've got a real gift. And you're like, and so you, you start as people, 
and you're making these assumptions, here's what happens. Now you start to see that person through the lens that you created about them. And the conclusion that you've drawn on a false and flimsy basis now becomes the prism through which you see that person and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which now only confirms to you, I can find an acorn anytime I want. I'm no blind squirrel. Are you kidding me? I got a sixth sense. When we size people up based on anything other than objective fact, we sin. I just want to be blunt with you. We don't size people up other than on objective fact. And this sin is so prevalent in part because it has its own self-preservation built into it. Once we have adopted this particular lens through which we view another, whatever they do is judged accordingly and virtually every act then, word they speak, confirms our original improper assumption. Here's another uh, category. It's uh, unedifying communication. Unedifying communication. That is, Communicating in ways that don't build up. Now, there's the obvious forms of this. If I yell at you in anger, if I call you names, this is obviously not building up. That would fit this category. But here's what I want you to get out of this category. It's not that obvious stuff. It's the what's not obvious. And that is, you're failing to build up someone else with your words when you fail to positively and intentionally speak words that are designed to be constructive. You fail in this when you refuse to positively and intentionally speak words that are constructive to your spouse. To put it another way, you could say, hey, I never speak an angry word to my spouse. And that could be true if you never speak any word to your spouse. Right? If you never speak any word, just theoretically, you never say a word to your spouse, then you will always be able to say, you know what? I never, I've never said an angry word to my spouse. I just don't talk to her at all. And you know what? You would be failing God's standard of using your communicating ability for the purpose for which he gave it, which is to intentionally and positively build your spouse up in constructive speech. All right, now if you'll go back to page 25 then. There are all of these ways that we hide. All of these ways that we're not open. And so consider this. On the one hand, we're wired to know and love God. On the other hand, our sinfulness compels us to rail against Him and avoid Him. So we live as divided people, always of two minds. Sometimes we genuinely desire to draw near to God, to embrace Him, to love Him, to love others. However, in the very next moment, we can feel the complete opposite impulse. Wild desire sees us, animosity and anger flare up. We inwardly shake our fists at God and others. The Bible describes this internal warfare this way. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good that I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. This is the dynamic that shows up when we try to communicate in marriage. On the one hand, we want to be known and loved. The other hand, we avoid knowing ourselves and know that it isn't entirely safe to be known. We don't know what should be said and what should be left unsaid. We tell selective truths, sometimes hiding from our spouses the most important things that are going on inside of us. So that all sounds very hopeless, doesn't it? 
But if you, and we're going to move ahead, here's Ephesians 4 again at the end of page 25. But if you look at page 26, it all sounds hopeless. But you have homework this week as every week. And every week I encourage you to do the homework, both the individual homework and with your spouse. But here's a piece of homework in the lesson. Top of page 26, this passage has words that describe two opposite ways of using our God-given ability. And then I just want you to think about these different words that are in this passage, both of the negative variety, the sinful variety, and the, and the positive variety. And then in that middle of that paragraph, I say, we are to speak the truth because we are, according to that passage, quote, created to be like God, and God is truth. When we speak the truth in love, that passage says we will grow up into Christ, who is God. That is, we'll become more like God because we're reflecting God's character. Now, what's the answer to the hopelessness then on page 25? It's here. When we speak the truth, we're imitating the character of God, and we speak the words of mercy and grace, we're mirroring what God, what has been done for us by God. And if you read Hebrews chapter 4 there, it's telling you that we have a high priest who will help us with what we can't do. So on page 25, you've got Paul who wrote that saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. And you read that and you go, yep, that's me. So where's the answer? And the answer is, thankfully, Jesus sympathizes with us, we say here, and gives us grace and mercy. And we can go to him with our weaknesses and needs with confidence instead of fear. In turn... We then need to show that same kind of grace and mercy to others. And then lastly, in our closing moments, emotion is involved in all of this. And two emotions in particular come out in our communication with with one another. One is anger and the other one is, is fear. Now, I'd like to, because those are so important, I would like to spend some time next week on those You'll have some additional paperwork, continuing communication, but I want to finish off anger and fear next week then. Let me urge you to do your homework. If you haven't done the homework from the previous weeks, I encourage you to catch up on that and do this homework both individually and as couples this this week, all right? Now, we're going to pray and be dismissed. Men, if you guys can stick around to help us set up the room for our baptism this afternoon, that would be very helpful. Ladies, after we pray, if you'll... Take it to the parking lot. That would be great. All right. All right. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for the good gift of communication. You are the God who speaks. You are the God who spoke the world into existence. God, the son who came to earth to die for us and to show us what we were to be like before sin. He's called the Word, the one who reveals, the one who makes known the Father. And so, Lord, you are a God who speaks, you're a God who communicates, and in your communication you speak transparently and honestly and truthfully. You reveal yourself to us. You've given us your world, which reveals what you are like, and you have given us your book, the Bible, that exposes, tells us what you are like. And this is your speaking. your communicating to us. And you made us in your image to use this communicating ability. An ability that we have above all other creatures you have made. 
to form words and to create words. Not simply react, but to act, to be proactive and not only reactive in our communication. Only we can do that made in your image. And yet, Lord, in our sin, we have taken this ability and we have used it in unauthorized ways. I pray, Lord, that you will help us this week to remember that because you gave this ability and because it's an ability that's to reflect you back to you, that the words that we speak this week, this afternoon, in every context, those words are sacred. And the Lord Jesus told us that all will one day give an account for every careless word that is spoken. So, Lord, help us to think as we talk. Help us to sanctify, set apart our words unto you. Help us to do that in every relationship to which you have called us, but especially the marital relationship. And as a result, may we reflect you better this week than last. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.